Welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. My guest today is Leopoldo Lopez, a Venezuelan political leader and democratic activist. I recently met Leopoldo and his wife Lillian at the Oslo Freedom Forum in Norway, and subsequently had the chance to speak with him at length and hear the harrowing story of his fight for freedom. We also spoke about how Bitcoin has the potential, and in many cases is already proving to be, an incredibly powerful tool in this cause, providing the opportunity for greater financial access and freedom to individuals all over the world and the many additional downstream benefits of doing so. In our discussions, I came to greatly admire Leopoldo's character and found his genuine curiosity and questions about Bitcoin, something that was quite new to him, to be very endearing. As a result, I thought it would be interesting to invite him on the show to continue our discussion and delve further into his fascinating and inspiring story. Enjoy. All right, we're recording after uh, a little bit of setup issues. Leopoldo, it's uh, really great to see you again. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. So thanks so much for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to, uh, to chat with me. No, thank you, John. Thank you. Uh, also looking forward for this conversation. The last time we spoke, we were in Norway. It was a phenomenal experience. Um, got to meet your wife, Lillian, and speak with you a lot with some of my friends and colleagues and the other people there about uh, Bitcoin. Um, and we were also introduced to your story uh, your incredible story that you've been, well, the incredible life you've been living for basically your entire life. So hopefully today we can cover a little bit of that and then we can get into some of the things that we were, you know, cornering you at, in, in a hot sauna and, and talking your ear off about in, uh, in Norway. So perhaps for people that aren't familiar with you or your story yet for a little bit of context, you can introduce yourself and then we'll, we'll get rolling. Yeah, I'll give you uh, a brief introduction. Um, I'm from Venezuela. I was born in the 1970s in Venezuela, when Venezuela was a, a prosperous democracy, um, a democracy with problems like, like many others, but it was, uh, in a way, a, an island in, in a continent surrounded by dictatorships. Um, I had the opportunity to come to the United States and, and study. I did my, uh, my studies of undergrad, grad uh, studies here in the U.S. Then I went back to Venezuela. Um, I worked first um, at the National Oil Company in the Office for Strategic Planning in the area of macroeconomics. Um, but then very soon I devoted to what has always been my my passion, politics and, and public service. So I ran for office. I won the in the mayorship for the municipality of Caracas, uh, one of the municipalities of Caracas, the capital of Venezuela. Um, so I became mayor um, for two terms. That was eight years. I was very young at the time. I was 27 when I was elected and we put together a very committed, very um, action-oriented team of people. And we did fantastic things. And we became a reference um, to local uh, politics in in, this, in the entire metropolitan area and in Venezuela as a whole. In the year 2008, um, I was running to become the governor of, of Caracas, the metropolitan mayor, and I was simply disqualified to run for office. I was going to win, but I got disqualified for no real reason beyond the fact that I was going to win. I took my case to the Inter-American Human Rights Court, 
And although we won the case, it was the first case that um, was taken on the grounds of political rights. However, it was not recognized by the regime at the time. So um, I wasn't able to continue to run for office. That took me to another stage of my life when I dedicated all of my efforts to put together um, nonviolent civil resistance movement. So I went around Venezuela uh, and joined efforts with many people, most of them young activists, uh, student leaders, but also social leaders, um, union leaders and others that shared the commitment to bring about political change and to confront what was already very clear to us, a dictatorship in Venezuela. So to make a very long story short, that took me to the year 2014 when we called for um, protests against the dictatorship. Um, and that brought tens of thousands of people to the streets and, and that took me to prison. So in February of 2014, there was a warrant for my arrest and I decided to turn myself in voluntarily instead of leaving the country or hiding away. And I did it because I was convinced at the time and in, in hindsight, I think it was the right decision um, that presenting myself was a way of showing Venezuela and the world that we were already under a dictatorship and we were no longer living a democracy. So that took me to prison where I spent the next seven years of my life confined. Um, the years between 2014 and the end of 2017, I was in a military prison, most of the time in solitary confinement. During that time, I was trialed and sentenced to 14 years in prison. Uh, it was a bogus trial. I had no possibility to present witnesses or proof. Uh, it was a, a closed trial. And I was, as I said, sentenced to 14 years in prison. By the end of 2017, I was taken to house arrest as a way to calm the protests that were happening in the streets of Venezuela. However, once I got to uh, my house, I decided to communicate my support to the protests that were taking place in Venezuela. And that took me back to military prison. That was maybe the, the hardest moment of my entire uh, process of confinement because I had the opportunity to be in my house with my children, with my wife, and then I was taken back to military prison. Um, sometime after that, I was taken back to house arrest and in April of 2019, uh, I escaped house arrest with the collaboration of my guards, of the military and the police that were surrounding my house. That's a, a story in itself that maybe we can get into that. Um, things didn't go the way we expected that day. So I had to seek refuge and, and I went to the Spanish embassy where I stayed the next year and a half. Uh, so by the end of 2020, I escaped the Spanish embassy and I escaped Venezuela. And that took me to Spain, where my family ha had been in exile for some years. And now I am living with my family in Spain, but I'm spending um, a lot of time in, in the United States, in Washington, D.C., 
where I am doing a fellowship at the Wilson Center. So, I mean, that's a, a long story, uh, short, but those were some of the milestones of um, some of the things I had to go through. You know, I, in, in, I hadn't, and I'm, I'm somewhat ashamed to say this because your story is so interesting and, and the politics of Venezuela and Latin America more broadly has been such a fascinating story, but I didn't know about you and your story until you told it to us uh, when we were in Norway together. And there's so many elements of it that are very interesting. One of which, which I came to learn afterwards, is that, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the great, 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 great grand nephew of Simon Bolivar. Is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, that is accurate. Um, it's by, because of my mother's father. Um, that's right. where we have the, uh, the connection. And, you know, it occurs to me I, in, in reading the history of Simon Bolivar and kind of the centrality of also of Venezuela in the broader Latin American independence story and, and movement that, you know, he, so much of his life was, as I learn about yours as well, there's like an interesting parallel in that he, you know, he studied in Europe and then he came back to Venezuela and then he, you know, he failed to accomplish his ends and he was exiled again and he was in Haiti and then he was back in Europe and then he was back. And there was so much of this, you know, try, try and fail and try and fail and, and, you know, um, be jailed and all these bad things happening, but he kept persisting. And I see in your story, and you know, again, like you said, you only just briefly introduced it, but you, you know, again, there's a lot of parallels where you you you're trying to promote and fight for freedom in Venezuela, and you're coming up against these obstacles that sometimes force you to be in prison, sometimes force you to leave, to be exiled, etc. So before we get into more of the details of of your life and, and motivation, do you? How do you perceive your relation to that individual in Simone Bolivar? And do you draw inspiration? Do you think about his life in, in relation to yours? What, how do you view that person in that historical period as it relates to your own ambitions and struggles? Well, Simone Bolivar is uh, the main historical figure of Venezuela and of four other countries in, in Latin America. He is um, the liberator of Venezuela, that's how, how we know him historically. Um, I'll tell you an anecdote about him that really inspires me. Um, he was sent to his first exile in 2012 after the first Republic uh, failed. And when he came back uh, to Caracas, there were many people um, receiving him and there were some slogans uh, about him. And the story goes that of all of the adjectives that were describing him, he took one flag with one word that he said, this is the one word that I really identify with. And it was perseverance. Um, so he said, if there is one thing that I can identify and I can tell you that I will always do is I will always persevere. And then after that year, he failed and he had to go into exile again. And then he came back. Uh, unfortunately, he died outside Venezuela um, with no resources, with no recognition. He was forced uh, out of his own country, the country that he liberated. But that's a story that is very similar, not just of Simón Bolívar, but of many other of our own historical figures in Latin America, 
and worldwide. Um, I've come to think a lot about this, about what are the characteristics of leaders that I admire the most. And my thinking has changed over time. Um, not necessarily the people I admire, but the moments of their own history um, has changed. So today I really find inspiration in the leaders that have been able to cross the desert. And when, the more I know about leaders that inspire me, the more I learn about the desert, about the difficult times, about times at prison, times in exile, times of misunderstanding, times of loneliness, times of shame, times of difficulty of, of persevering. Um, so I, I've learned, of course, a lot about uh, Simon Bolivar as a, as a historical figure, but many others have, as well that um, had this characteristic of perseverance, of, of falling and um, stepping up again, of continuing to fight the fight, no matter what the circumstances are. And I think this is true for, for many historical figures. And I think this is very true for many present figures. Um, what differentiates one person from another in terms of leadership is the capacity to stand up to difficulties, to stand up to obstacles, and to always find the reason why I to wake up and to continue the fight for whatever you're fighting for. In my case, it's for the freedom of Venezuela, is to have a country where people have the possibility to live freely, to live under a democratic system, to be under the rule of law, and to have the possibility to participate in free and fair elections. These are universal values that I hold very dear uh, for some people, these might be values that are abstract, that are distant, even if you live in a democracy. But if you don't have uh, any of these values in your present day, you hold them very dearly. So those are some of the lessons that, uh, that I draw from historical figures. Like him, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you grew up in a, a relatively prosperous family, right? You had opportunities, you were, you know, you were in the upper class, let's say, educated abroad. Um, so what was it? Because when we talk about perseverance, there has to be a reason you're persevering. And you, you touched on it or alluded to it just then a little bit. And you said some, you know, various people have different reasons why they persevere. Maybe it's a love of their family. Maybe it's a desire for freedom of their, their people and themselves and, and other causes. Um, but oftentimes it's the case or at least perhaps there's a, the desire for freedom is probably felt less by people who have an abundance of options, i.e. wealth and the options that, that that provides for people. So, you know, I've heard you speak a number of times now, I've watched a ton of, you know, videos and stuff on YouTube and, and, and we've talked about this, you know, personally when we were in Norway, how freedom is, you know, a paramount value and a paramount objective for you and, and for the people of Venezuela. Where did that come from? First of all, where did your appreciation for and desire for freedom, not just for you, but for everyone, at least within your country, where did that come from? And what does freedom mean to you? How would you define freedom uh, as an ideal or a principle or a, or a value? So these are two different questions that you're asking. Um, the first is, you know, why I became engaged in politics. And I can tell you that Ever since I 
have memory, I, I always wanted to be in public service. And I, I thought, you know, when, when was the moment? What was the tipping point for me? And as you said, I, I come from a family that gave me opportunities in Venezuela. Um, but what really changed me was understanding the inequalities uh, of my countries, seeing face to face um, the poverty that we had at the time, that, that it was um, a country that although was democratic, was going on a prosperity path, there was uh, a lot of poverty and inequality. And, and that's what really drove me to devote my life to public service. Also, I had the blessing of being brought up in a family where all of the conversations that we had were about Venezuela or history or geography or landscapes and or economy, the politics. So I, I grew up in a family where the, the, the main issue that we'll always uh, talked about was Venezuela, or as I said, many aspects of it. So those are, I think, the reasons why I ended up devoting my life to public service. Um, but then your second question is about freedom. And uh, for me, freedom was an abstract, like I believe it's an abstract to, to many people. Many of the people who are listening to this podcast, I'm sure, live in the United States or maybe live in Europe or maybe live in a democracy. And for them, like it was for me for many years, freedom was an abstract, was an idea, something you wrote about, something you read about, something um, inspired that inspired poetry or music or, or that it was always present in, in slogans. But for me, uh, I, understanding of freedom uh, was um, a moment I understood freedom when I was in prison. Uh, so I really came to terms to what freedom meant to me when I was locked in a two by two cell um, with no possibility of going out, having that situation for days, weeks, months, years. Uh, and, and that's when I actually knew what freedom was about. So in a way, uh, my understanding of freedom became very clear when I didn't have it. So. It was a concept I came to terms with, not by what it was, but what, by understanding, feeling, and living what it was like uh, not having it. So that for me was a very powerful experience to really hold very close to my understanding what freedom is about. Um, and in a way, what I felt in that cell is what millions of people feel in our country, um, that we are no longer free. We used to be, as I said before, a democracy with its problems, but a democracy where freedom, democracy were always concepts that were present, but that we didn't know that they were very fragile and we lost them. Uh, and now I believe that if you talk to any Venezuelan, inside or outside, they can talk about democracy and freedom and the constitution and the rule of law and free and fair elections and the importance of independent justice um, with a lot of uh, propriety because they know what it means not to have any of that. So I think um, that in a way our, our task is to talk to people who live in free countries about the importance of freedom. 
because I think that people that live in free countries don't hold very dear these ideas and, and how fragile they could be. Uh, and I think that, that, that understanding that not having freedom is having uh, a life where you have many limitations uh, is something we need to fight against. And freedom is a word, but the way in which you reach freedom is if you have different ways uh, to express that freedom. So freedom is the sum of many freedoms. You live in a free society if you have free citizens. And in order to be a free citizen, you need to have the right to do different things. The right to free, freely speak, the right to freely vote, the right to freely associate, the right to freely work and make your own decisions. So freedom, although it's one word, the, uh, the materialization of freedom is many things. Because in, in a society, you might have one freedom, but they take away another freedom. So you're not entirely free. And we saw this as in, in this long period of, um, of losing democracy in our country, um, that we were losing the different aspects of freedom one by one. So in our case in Venezuela, and I think this is true for other countries, we didn't lose democracy from one day to another. It was a gradual process. And in that process, we started to lose different aspects of being in a free society. So they first went um, against freedom of speech and they closed radio stations. They closed TV stations. They incarcerated uh, journalists. Then they went after um, the freedom of association. So they went against union leaders. Then they went uh, against the freedom of, um, of, 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 of to, to, or the right of property. And they started to expropriate the lands and the businesses of different people. Then they went against the, the freedom of knowledge and they started to close and interfere in the universities. So it was a gradual process that led to where we are today, that we are a closed society, very similar to any other dictatorship with our own characteristics. But Venezuela today is much more like Iran or China or Russia than it is to Colombia, uh, United States, um, or the Dominican Republic where you are now. I want to come back to uh, some of the things you said, but just because you mentioned that you know, being in solitary confinement, being in prison helped to crystallize what freedom was, wh what freedom meant to you. And I, I think it's an important point that freedom is a spectrum, right? And, you know, and the part of the political dialogue is, well, you know, where, where do we draw the line? You know, where do we want some order and structure and, and regulation and where do we want total freedom? And there's a lot of diff differing opinions on that. But, uh, you know, just to come back to the personal aspect of all this, I mean, it's when a, when a story like yours is told, it's very easy to gloss over several years at a time and say, oh, Leopoldo was a, a popular mayor in Caracas and he was, you know, a you know, popular politician on the national level. And then he ran afoul of the regime and he was put in prison for, you know, four or five, six, seven years and house arrest. And then he escaped and now he's in exile and, you know, now he's fighting for freedom everywhere. But, you know, four years in a prison cell 
is a long time, you know, in story form, it's very short, but in the, in the felt, in the experience of it, it's a very long time. And I'm sure it's a very challenging, but also transformative experience because, you know, you're alone with yourself a lot. You're alone with your thoughts, your emotions, you're alienated from your family and from your friends and all that kind of stuff. And so, and you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe, maybe they come to your door one day and they decide, you know, now's your turn to be executed because you're too much of a political risk. Like with the, with the context of a story, we know in hindsight, we can say, oh, it was four years, but you didn't know that at the time. It could have been 10 years. It could have been longer. And so I'm just curious, like, what was that like? And how did you get through that period of the uncertainty and the isolation and just the, the sheer extremity of the experience and how, that, how challenging that was mentally, physically, emotionally, everything? Yeah. So uh, as you say, uh, seven years is a long time, which is a total time I spent in, in, in confinement. Um, of those four years were in solitary confinement that were very, very tough. Uh, let me tell you how I, how I prepared for this because I had the opportunity to prepare. So six months before I ended up going to prison, there was a warrant for my arrest and that gave me the opportunity. Then they took it back. Um, but that gave me the opportunity to be face to face with a high possibility of going to prison. And that gave me the opportunity to talk to my wife. I, I told her, um, this might happen because I will take the protest and I will take my position against a dictatorship to the limit. I'm not going to stop, uh, but we need to get prepared for this. So that gave me, as I said, the opportunity to, to, to talk to my wife, both prepared. But I also started reading a lot about um, other people's experience in, in prison, uh, particularly political prisoners. So I read about Nelson Mandela. I read about Gandhi. I read about Luther King, uh, their experiences in prison that were very different, but all very insightful. I read about uh, Cardinal Van Tuan, who was um, a priest that was imprisoned in Vietnam for 13 years. And I read a lot about Venezuelan political prisoners. In a way, Venezuelan politics for the past 200 years has been about, you know, people going into prison and then coming out and then going back to prison. And so, so it, it has been uh, a long cycle of, uh, of, of prison and, and, and freedom. And of everything I read, the, the thing that stood out was routine, that you needed to have a routine in prison. So I thought about this and I remember very clearly my first night in prison. I remember almost minute by minute how I spent that night because that was the night of a transition from being in the streets, from rallying people, from organizing people, going around um, my country um, over and over to being in a cell with me, myself, and I. Uh, and the battlefield of my struggle changed dramatically from the streets to my head. And I knew that the battlefield was my head. So I decided to put together a, a very simple routine that consisted in praying every day, in exercising my intellect in whatever way I could, reading, writing, drawing, trying to play an instrument, and exercising, doing physical exercise. So my routine was mine 
soul and body. And I would do that every day. Uh, so I had a sporting discipline about that routine and that took me through prison. That allowed me to be very, even in, in, in a way, I was grateful and I was able to, to pray with gratefulness because of what I was going through. Um, many years ago, uh, a priest gave me an advice that, that helped me a lot. He said, you know, people pray for three reasons. People pray for need, people pray for um, fear, and people pray for gratefulness. And of the three, the, the strongest one is when you pray for gratefulness. So I decided that I would pray every day and I was never going to ask God uh, to take me to, to, for my freedom. So I decided not to go into a trap where I would pray for something to happen the next day. Mm, so I did the contrary. I would mm, talk about my present and my past, and I would always be grateful of my upbringing, the fact that I had the opportunity to meet my grandparents, uh, to have wonderful parents, to meet my wife, to have children, to have an education, and even to be in prison. So I, I would thank God to, to have given me the opportunity to have that human experience and to feel injustice, because the only way in which you can truly and deeply fight for justice is if you have lived through injustice. So I was grateful that I had that opportunity. Um, and I know this might sound um, weird for some people, but, but that's a way I was able to go through solitary confinement and to keep uh, my focus uh, during my time in prison. I would, as I said before, I would read everything that I could, but then they took my, the books away. I would write, I actually wrote two books while I was in prison, and then they took my pencil and my paper away. Uh, I would exercise every day and they took away what I, the, the, the implements I had to, to exercise. But I always went around, I always went around that. So um, I spent every single day of my imprisonment doing those three things. And that's how I was able to uh, spend more than a thousand days in, in prison with a commitment, with high spirits, with, um, with purpose, with purpose. And this is something else that I reflected a lot about. Um, people talk about happiness. For some people, happiness is having material gains or having recognition or having a job. Um, but I believe that happiness is about being true to your purpose. So I was blessed and to have a purpose and I, I continue to be blessed to have a purpose. And that's why I believe I am a happy person because I am aligned with the purpose to see my country free. Um, and that kept me very um, motivated day by day, day in and day out. Um, I was fighting for that purpose and I continue to fight for that same purpose. Yeah. One of the, I'm not sure if it was something that uh, I heard you say in our discussions or if I heard you say on a, another interview, but it was that it's a blessing to live with a cause, you know, something 
to fight for, something to continue to advance that process of improving yourself, making yourself more fit or capable of engaging in that cause. And, and, and as a result, having that reason to continuously refine yourself, because absent that, absent a purpose or cause, maybe you would let yourself feel resentment or feel guilt or feel shame or feel apathy. You know, maybe you would die in a place like solitary confinement in a horrible military prison because what's the point, right? And, and to have a cause that's so motivating, I can, you know, especially in the context of your explanation, I can understand why that would be a blessing. Just for a visual though, what was, you said it was a two by two meter cell. Like what, what was your daily environment? What would they give you to eat? What did that look like? Well, it was a, a two meter by two and a half meter cell. Um, I had a latrine. There was no running water. Uh, I had a, a bucket of water that they changed every three or four days. Um, at first, I had prison food. Then uh, a prisoner, political prisoner, military, was poisoned with, um, with glass, with the a, with a prison food. So we were able to get food um, from a different source, then that changed several times. Um, at first I had access to books. So I had many books in my cell, but then since they saw that I was finding comfort and, um, and stability with, uh, with my readings and my writing, they, they took the books away. Uh, my cell, I only had a bed. I did not have a table or a chair uh, for most of the time. Uh, I had natural light, so I was in the dark for 12 hours every day because they shot the electricity of the entire building. So from 6.30 to uh, in the afternoon to 6.30 in the morning, I was completely in the dark, which in itself was an interesting experience for me because uh, that allowed me to find that it was not only about my eyesight, but also about hearing. So my sense of space and time was not led by my eyesight, but by my hearing. So I was able to know what time of the night it was because of the sounds that I was getting from the outside. So that was a, a, a very interesting experience. To, to live through. Um, I was in solitary confinement for most of the time, as I told you. I was um, forbidden to talk to other prisoners. At times, I was allowed to go to mass, uh, but I would be always with two or three or four military guards. So I was always forbidden to talk to other prisoners. Um, at times I was taken down, um, to see the sun for a brief period of time. Um, at times I was allowed to go to the basketball court by myself. Um, by, uh, in a very brief period of time, I was allowed to play with other prisoners. Uh, but then since I started talking and organizing the prisoners, they forbid me from talking to other prisoners. Um, we actually were able to organize the prisoners in such a way that in February of 2015, we organized a prison riot and we took control of the entire prison. Um, and after that, you know, things went, um, 
were a lot stricter for me. But uh, that was a it was a, a good moment to organize and to take control of the prison for a day. But it was a, a good battle that we won. Um, so you, you took control and then the, the military came in and re- took yes. back control. And then you guys were all punished, presumably. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was very tough. So it all started um, by having contact with other prisoners. So I was allowed to go to mass. And there is a, a moment in the mass that you share peace with the other people present. So you stand up and, and, and you know, you, you pat people and you say, peace be with you. So uh, although I was with two military guards in mass, I knew that that was the only moment I had to contact other prisoners. When you're in prison and other prisoners can, can state to this, you are in survival mode. So all of your senses are very sensitive. So I would know with a blink, you know, who would be favorable to work us and who was against us. So I made decisions, you know, if somebody would seem to be favorable, I would tell them the following message. I would say, tell your wife to seek my wife in the line uh, during the visit day so we will be in contact. So this was a very uh, long way of communicating because it required, you know, weeks of iteration to have a cycle of conversation. But I was able to contact with and maintain conversation through my wife, through the wives of the other prisoners, with prisoners in, in the place um, where there was most of the, of, of, of the prison population. So I was able to organize representatives in each one of the areas of, of the prison. Uh, and we were very active in this. They had less restrictions in the other part of the prison. So they started to communicate among themselves and they started to communicate with my wife. So we started to organize um, the, the, the prisoners. So one day, um, a spark um it was ignited because they mistreated a, a baby when the visit was taking place. And that created a lot of outrage uh, and that sparked the, the protest. So we were already, we already had a plan of how to take control of the prison. So they took control of the building where most of the population was. And then they went uh, through the ceiling to the building where I was. I was in a cell in solitary confinement. But through the ceiling, they were able to communicate with me and they told me that they were going to go in uh, and to take me away to another prison. So other prisoners came into to that building and it was a very tense day because when the National Guard were coming in through the stairs, I don't know how this happened, but one of the prisoners had a two liter bottle of gasoline. So he spread gasoline to the uh, to the guards that were coming in and he had a lighter and he said, if you get closer, I will ignite you. So they went down and, and that was, you know, a short term victory because 45 minutes after that, they came with tear gas, with shotguns, with, uh, and they took control of, uh, of, of that part of, uh, of the prison. They took some of those people out and they wanted to take me to another prison. I resisted. So they took me to, to a different cell. Um, and that was one of many of, many of, of, uh, of, of the tense moments that I, that I had in prison. 
But the most important thing um, for me was that we always had the attitude uh, to continue to fight, the will to fight. I never lost the will to fight, not even if I was in confinement, not even if we were you know, being punished, not even if, if things looked very dark in terms of what was coming forward. Um, I always kept the will to fight. And I think this is essential to always have the, the, uh, the, the will to wake up and to continue to fight for the purpose of freedom. Um, and I continue to have that. And, and that was a, a very strong learning experience for me while I was in prison. I have a bit of a dark question, but given the nature of of this regime that you've been opposing in various ways, you know, be it being in the streets, protesting, hunger strikes, you know, these sorts of things in prison and all the di different activities that you're engaging in to, uh, to oppose them. Why wouldn't they just get rid of you when they have the opportunity? You know? Well, this was, um, this was a threat while, while I was in prison. Uh, actually there were, moment when I thought I was going to be killed. Um, there has been, okay, there have been cases in Venezuela of political prisoners dying in prison. Uh, seven Venezuelans, uh, political prisoners have died in prison, uh, over the past years. So yes, this was, this was a clear and present danger. And, um, I think that the, the way to confront this is, is not to be fearful, uh, of it. It's, it's to know that this, that this can happen. But if you become a prisoner of your fear, you really become a prisoner. So I wrote a book while I was in prison and I titled the book in Spanish, Preso Pero Libre. That means imprisoned, but free. And, and that was my attitude because I was always feeling and I was always um, cultivating my free spirit. Although my body, uh, I was physically imprisoned, I never felt that my soul, that my spirit was, uh, was in prison. Uh, and this is a big challenge for, for prisoners and for political prisoners, particularly is to win the fight in your head. You might be in prison, but if they win the fight in your head, you, you, you have, you're lost. And, um, my political party or political party is called Voluntad Popular, People's Will. We have become the most uh, confrontational um, political movement in Venezuela against the dictatorship. Uh, and that has had consequences. So we've had more than 500 political prisoners. Several of my friends, my close friends, have been killed. Um, many of us are now in exile. We are uh, signaled by the dictatorship as a terrorist organization um as outlaws so i have seen how many of my colleagues have reacted most of them continue to fight even if they left prison but i have seen how some of them have become depressed uh, and i have even seen how some very few uh have treason have committed treason against or cause and have become uh tools of the dictatorship. So prison can either strengthen you or it can either break you. Uh, and I have seen all of that. 
So sure. uh, going through prison is a really intense psychological experience. It's a very intense experience that takes you to the limit physically and psychologically. Uh, but if you can go through that, you certainly come out of that experience as a stronger and a better human being. At least I see that period of my life without resentment. Um, I see that period of my life as a very difficult for me, for my family, but as a period of my life where I learned a lot, where I became stronger. Uh, I came to terms with myself in ways that I don't think I could have done without being in that extreme situation. Um, I came to terms with terms like self-control, patience, um, meditation, um, inward looking like, uh, like I've never had before. So I was always very positive about the experience I was going through. Uh, I always tried to look at the bright side of what I was going through. And that helped me uh, a great deal. Sure. Why do you think the regime, what, what do you think were the regime's motivations not to kill you when they had the opportunity? Like it presumably they don't care that much about what other outside forces, countries think of them. Was it because you were such a known and liked figure that it would have caused some problems that they didn't want to have to deal with? Like you're, you were clearly a thorn in their side. Why not just remove the thorn and not have to deal with you and your efforts moving forward? Well, you said it. It, it was because of, um, of the notoriety that my case had. Um, my wife, um, who's my soulmate, she, she was not involved in politics before all of this. She's a school teacher. Um, she was a TV presenter and uh, an extreme sports um, champ in Venezuela. She was Venezuelan national champ for kitesurf. Um, and we actually fell in love because we both share extreme sports. So she became my voice when I was in prison and she was able to take my case beyond Venezuela. And in a way that was uh, an insurance that, that I had. Um, and the, the, the people that were you know, also calling for my case to be known and, and for my freedom, I think that was the reason why they didn't go all the way uh, and basically get rid of me um, in a different, uh, in, in a different scenario, as you said, but the threat was there. And I mm -hmm. have um, other people that were with me were killed in prison. So, I mean, this is not something that was out of the possibilities. This was a clear and present danger that we faced, but I think the best way to face this threats is to overcome fear. So there is a passage in Mandela's uh, autobiography, A Long Walk to Freedom, where he talks about courage. And he says, courage is not about not having fear. It's about doing something um, to combat uh, that fear. It's stepping up against your own fear uh, and, and, and doing um, what you believe is right although you know that there might be consequences for doing that. So I think that that, that definition of courage given by Mandela uh, is something that creates an attitude in very risky circumstances 
And, and I learned that uh, from him and from my own personal experience. Yeah. How do you think, you know, because I, I personally think that very few people in the world consider themselves evil. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's sort of, a, of an idea. Um, not to say that evil doesn't exist because, you know, it, 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 it certainly seems that it does in certain, certain cases. But how do you think someone like Nicolas Maduro thinks of himself. How do you, what, what do you think his own perception of what he's trying to accomplish is? Well, as, as you said, you know, most of the people that, that are evil and, and do bad things um, don't think of themselves as evil. Um, I think that most of the people have some sort of disorder, psychological or, uh, or do, um, uh, a justification for uh, the evil that they are doing and trying to frame it as doing the right thing. But to your question, I did not know what evil was until I was in prison. And in prison, I came face to face with evil. I came face to face with people that um, liked to make other people feel bad that found um, enthusiasm in torturing other people, that found pleasure in seeing other people suffering. And up until I was in prison, I didn't see this. I mean, I saw many wrongdoings. Uh, I saw people I didn't like and I, that I distrust. But evil is, is another stage. Evil is having pleasure in the suffering of another person. And I saw that in prison. And I saw eye to eye people that are evil. And, and uh, in a way that was a learning experience for me as well, because it allowed me to understand that all fight for freedom is a fight that takes place in many, many different levels. And one of them is at this level of good versus evil. Uh, it's, it's a moral fight of good versus evil. Um, and we always need to keep that in mind. Yeah, I think it was Solzhenitsyn that said the line between good and evil runs down the center of every man's heart or something like that. I, yes. I may not have the proper attribution there, but I think another, this seems to be what happens when you have an imbalance of power between two people or two groups of people, and you don't have people that are oriented by morality, let's say, or, or, or a clear conception of what their morality is. And they're more oriented by, they're more incentivized by that imbalance of power. I think the Stanford prison experiment, prison experiment is another famous example where you take- I think it's a Berkeley prison experiment. Oh, Berkeley. Okay. okay. Yeah. You take normal people, just, yeah. you know, average citizens, you throw them in a prison environment, you're the guards, you're the inmates. And over the course of not a very long period of time, I can't remember what it was, but let's say it was only days. Uh, you get extreme abuses by these otherwise normal people that become the guards against the inmates. And of course, you see this in uh, in war environments all the time. Much is made of either, you know, in Russia or in, in Nazi Germany during that period, where simply by virtue of having the power and the quote unquote license to to impose your power on other people, it it, it brings out a wickedness in people that aren't rigidly morally aligned, let's say, that don't have certain moral lines that they won't cross. 
And, and it, and what that, among other things, what I think that reveals is that for so many people, the, the quote unquote lines that they won't cross cross are socially constructed rather than morally constructed. Because if you just, if you will never harm another innocent human being, and that's the line you won't cross, you'll never engage in those behaviors. But if your constraints are more social, then if you're given the opportunity to impose, you know, to harm another human being, and that that conjures up a sense of power, or it even feels good in some respect, then you might do it. And this seems to be the case with the prison experiment, with prison inmates, with soldiers, and you know, and there's manifestations of the of this in day to day life, you know, in the different interactions we have with people and how we get aggravated and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's, I mean, how do you combat that? I guess is one of well, the, let me, the, let me the questions. Let me just give some context to, to the reference that you're making that I think is very important. Um, I think there is a documentary called The Experiment. And, uh, and as you said, uh, it's basically taking normal people and, and throw them into a context where some of them become prisoners and some of them become the guards. And um, over time, the, the, the behavior becomes, as you explained, the guards abusing the prisoners. Uh, and, and this is something that, that, I, that I saw, that I, that I experienced. I, um, I did a, in 2015, I did a hunger strike. Uh, this is May of 2015. Um, the motivations for the hunger strike were different, but the focus of what we wanted to take out from that hunger strike was for the regime to set the date for the parliamentary election. And there was a window of opportunity of a month for that to happen. Uh, and we were actually very successful. So I spent 28 days in, in a hunger strike. I lost uh, 14 kilograms and- um, No food, but, just water? Is that what that means? Yes, yes. Um, water and, and, and salt uh, for the electrolytes. Um, uh-huh. So, uh, I, I, after that experience, they put me in a more stricter solitary confinement and they devoted six guards solely to be involved with me. So these were six people I got to know very well. Uh, at the beginning, they were, you know, regular people. And, and I spoke to them about different things. I spoke to them about their families, their upbringing, their experiences. But then one day, and it was just from one day to another, one day, everything changed. They would not look me straight in the eye. They stopped calling me Leopoldo and they started me calling prisoner number one. Uh, They never went alone to my cell. They always were in groups of two or three. They always recorded every single interaction they had with me and they became very, very hostile. So for me, this was a shock because I knew these people. I mean, I, I spent several months getting to know them. And although they were my guards and, and I was a prisoner, we had some of our, a normal relationship, but that completely changed. And one day I asked uh, Sergeant Quintero, uh, when I was being taken from one place to another, I asked him, you know, I know you, my friend. I know you're not a bad person, so I know something happened. So, you know, what happened? And he remained silent. Weeks after that, I was again walking with him from one place to another. And he said, you remember you asked me that question about what happened? And I said, yes. And he said, 
Well, this is what happened. We were taken to a, a training program by the Cubans um, to treat you in a specific way. So we were ordered to treat you in that way. It's not because of what we wanted, but what the orders that we were given to. Uh, and although they were given that, that, that order to treat me in a different way that it was non-human, in a way to dehumanize the, the, the interaction, I saw how some of them started to find a lot of pleasure in, in, in treating me uh, in, in, in a way that was, uh, that was not right. Um, and, and that's how I connect to this experiment um, that you mentioned, because in a way it's embedded in human nature that if you don't put moral limits or social limits to your behavior, I mean, you may very easily go to an extreme and, and, and commit this, this type of, um, of, 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 of or, or be part of this very, um, bad behavior. Yeah. And I, I think this is one of the problems critiques with perhaps all political systems and why, of course, many political systems have attempted to have checks and balances on power, because when you have an apparatus of power like the state, well, certainly the possibility for what you're describing always exists. And then all it takes is for one person, maybe again, who, who we've been saying is not, does not see themselves as evil, but just has different notions of what is right and wrong and what should be and what shouldn't be. And is trying to impose their vision of what the world or their country should look like through that apparatus of power. And because it is so powerful, they're able that, you know, their will is able to be transmitted through that. And that may create an environment where all those injustices, all those abhorrent behaviors are able to take place. And this is, I mean, this is the ongoing political dialogue. Well, how do you restrain that? And what are the ideals and principles that are, that should guide the construction of that apparatus of political power so that it doesn't do that? And as you know, in your, your experience, as you were saying in, in prison, that, you know, prayer and faith was a big part of that. And I know in a lot of the world today, the kind of secular world, this is not something that a lot of people are comfortable with, or there's, there's some criticism of it, but it seems to me that it's almost inevitable that you're going to have to find a source for morality so that not everything is relative, because then I think you get into a problem where it's easier for the power apparatus to be corrupted. And this is an ongoing, we find ourselves in 2022 in the world today, kind of wondering, or some people, for some people, it's, they're not wondering at all. They've decided where the morality comes from and they're quite happy to live their lives that way. But there's a broader conversation of how do we determine right and wrong? What, what is it that we're kind of tethering our political and social and cultural systems to? What are those values, those fundamental values and principles such that we minimize the chances of falling into this dynamic that we've been describing where power is able to be exacted in an imbalanced fashion to the detriment of, of millions of people. Well, you know, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on well, I mean, that, that that, that's, a, I mean, that's a very deep issue that, that touches on, on, on many aspects of political, moral, religious, personal. Um, but I've come to terms with the fact that there are some universal values that at least I uphold and I, um, that I fight for. Um, 
freedom, as we spoke earlier, democracy, uh, the rule of law, uh, the respect for human rights and civil liberties, the possibility of having a free and fair elections. And, and these are values that are above ideology, because if you assume yourself as a, as, as a democratic person, um, these are values that regardless if you are to the right or to the left of the ideological spectrum, you should cherish, support, and defend. Um, and for societies and individuals that have gone through processes where you don't have that, these universal values become very, very close and they become the, the reason you fight for. So this morning I had a meeting with um, my friends from Hong Kong uh, who were the leaders of the Umbrella Revolution. We couldn't be more different from Hong Kong. I mean, they are in Asia, we're in Latin America, um, different skin colors, different religions, different traditions, different languages, different value systems. So we couldn't be more different. But when we talk about these things, uh, I feel closer to them than talking to even some people in my own country because they have gone through what we have gone through. And they are going through this exact same um, thought process, this internal process of understanding you know, why we fight for freedom, what freedom means to us, why we cherish the rule of law, um, why we want to um, put our freedom and our lives in the line for the possibility of all countries to live um, with these values for everybody. Um, and I find a lot of strength in talking to people from other countries that are going through the same process that, 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 that we are in Venezuela. Because it's very easy to particularize and to signal out each struggle as a particular struggle and not connect the dots. But when I talk to my friends from Hong Kong or from Iran or from Africa or from Belarus or from Russia or from Nicaragua or Cuba, um, I find many similarities and I, ha I find a lot of strength in, in not just joining efforts, but just knowing each other and just um, finding the possibilities to learn from, from each other in this long way to freedom that we are embarked in. Mm -hmm. You mentioned human rights there, and you know this is a topic that is discussed in many places by many people, but I feel sometimes it's de facto assumed what that even means. You know, and you said that there's not you know, it's not really a matter of ideology, but I, I'd be interested in knowing, you know, what that word or what, what that idea means to you. What are, in your opinion, the fundamental human rights that should be, be beyond, you know, politics and ideology and should be granted to all, no matter where they are? Well, there, there was a turning point in this discussion after World War II um, that there was a universal declaration of human rights that was um, presented and signed and approved by the countries in the, in the UN, although many of them don't respect them. But the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I think, is a, an important turning point to uh, understand that, this is, that these are values that should be defended and promoted 
for any individual and any society in the world. Um, and I think they're very basic, and I mentioned them before, you know, just the respect of life, the respect of, um, of the rights uh, of each individual, uh, the possibility of each individual to be treated equally um, in front of the law, uh, not to be discriminated because of your skin color or your, or your religion or your social or economic status, the possibility to um, decide the future of your country through a free and fair election. And these are, again, universal values um, that for some people living in free countries might become part of a discussion or might be relativized. But if you live in countries where these values are irrespected and are being crushed day in and day out, you understand the value of them. You understand that without them, you cannot consider yourself a free person. Uh, because to be a free person, you need to live in a free society. And a free society is one in which all individuals are free. And in order for all individuals to be free, you need these basic things. You need a rule of law and you need the, 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 everybody to be treated equally. Uh, and there needs to be the respect for the human rights of each individual. So I, I understand that this is an ongoing discussion in many areas, in philosophy, in ethics, in politics, in political science, in, in all of the areas. But I do believe that these are universal values. And I do believe that there needs to be the commitment for them to be spread out all over the world. And I think that we are in a moment now where this becomes relativized and some people even living within democracies, started to question if democracy is the best way to organize a society. Uh, I believe it is, of course, and I believe it is with all of its faults. I will always rather live in a democracy with problems than in a, a, a dictatorship that takes away the freedom of individuals. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with uh, the French political philosopher Bastiat. Yeah. So, and, you know, man, many have espoused a very similar uh, sort of political ideology as, as he has. He's just the one that first comes to my mind. Um, but basically he looked, because, you know, I largely agree with what you've just said on the importance, the importance of, of these quote unquote rights and, and how they should orient a, a society and that everyone should be, you know, granted them. But, you know, one of the things that I think history teaches us is that they are still ultimately just ideas and one regime may decide to uphold them and another may decide not to uphold them. And so it brings, it invites the question, is a right just a permission and can it be revoked at any time? And we would like to say that, no, they're inviolable. They're granted by the creator and some constitutions, many constitutions perhaps, use that language to try to give them a gravity. But oftentimes it doesn't matter because if you control the apparatus of power, well, you can decide what rights people have. It doesn't matter what you believe about the creator and what you're granted as inviolable or not. And so I think many are coming to appreciate that one must be able to defend the rights that they have as much as possible on an individual level. And of course, Bastiat's philosophy would say that the, the function of the state is simply to uh, 
protect private property. So your physical body and your property to make sure that those relations are not violated. So, you know, theft and contract and things like that aren't violated. But other than that, you stay out of the affairs because the more you involve yourself in the, the, you know, the formally voluntary affairs of, of free people, the more you invite the encroachment or the more you invite dependency on that apparatus of the state. And ultimately that becomes a risk for those rights being able to be well, first granted, but then perhaps later revoked or changed in some way. And so I know that type of approach to politics and uh, political philosophy is quite rare in the world today, because I think we live in, you know, this, the nation state era that we live in today is a very much a kind of a big government sort of philosophy. But what is, and I know, you know, I, I'm familiar with the philosophy of, uh, the political party that you founded and that I believe you still support, but how do you feel about, you know, the role of, of the state and government generally as it relates to what we were just talking about human rights or further, you know, some of the things I alluded to just then? Well, I, the first thought that comes to my mind is that yes, that the, the main responsibility of our government is, um, justice, um, security, and within justice, of course, uh, defending the rights of the people. However, when you have very unequal societies, it, it's very difficult to have a blind eye against inequalities, injustices. So I believe that there needs to be some direct um, involvement of the state in trying to um, equal out the, the, the conditions and, and the opportunities. However, having said that, I've become um, over the years uh, more afraid of state intervention in, in, in many of the people's affairs. So I don't believe that the state should be directly involved in, in managing um, parts of the economy. We come from a very statist economy in Venezuela um, when there was a lot of fiscal income because of the oil proceeds. That seemed to work well, but then when the price of oil came down, we found ourselves with a, a very huge state apparatus that was not viable, and that became the source of more economic and social crisis. So I, I, I think that um, ideally the state should focus in the things that cannot be done by civil society and that is justice and, and security. Um, but I also believe that everybody should be granted the possibility to have access to education and health. Um, and, and I think that's where the focus of the, the state should be. Um, I don't think that the state is good in managing um, state enterprises. I mean, you might have some exceptions, but I, I think that the private sector can do that in a better way. However, um, the state should have the capacity to lay out some of the rules um, in order for um, opportunities to be open for everybody, not to uh, promote monopolies and not to promote inequalities with respect to opportunities uh, within different societies. So, um, yes, I... I I think that this is a, an, an ongoing discussion. 
Um, but there is a, a, a present challenge. Again, in, in countries like my country, you have a present day-to-day -day challenge uh, of how to overcome poverty, how to give people opportunities, how to overcome the very, um, very large inequalities that we face. So these are issues that need to be addressed. Um, and the answer cannot be trickle-down economics, that if you have a growing economy, then by some way and sometime, uh, the people will reap the profits of, uh, of, of growth just because it will happen. I think over the past 30 years, we know that this is not the case. So there needs to be the, uh, the possibility to promote the conditions for everybody to have similar opportunities, doesn't matter where they are born. And now that you're talking about philosophy, I, I, I'll, I'll bring another philosopher that I think talks about this issue. His name is John Rawls. Uh, he's an American philosopher, and he talks about um, the, the justice in a very interesting way. He says that, um, think about a society that you are planning uh, and about the conditions that that society should have, but that you will be part of that society in the percentages of, of, of uh, how that society is uh, distributed now. So chances are that if you're living in a poor country, you will have 80% of the probabilities to be part of a poor family uh, with no opportunities. So if you think of the way in which that society should be shaped, and you know that you will have 80% probabilities of being part of the poorest sectors of society, you're thinking of how that society should be shaped it's it's uh, quite different. The same goes for you know for for gender, for race, for religion. So um, the exercise that he does is to force the thinking of a society that opens opportunity to everybody, regardless of gender, race, economic conditions. Sure, you know I'm 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 sympathetic to. Well, I, I attempt to be empathetic to all sorts of perspectives, and I, I certainly want the most opportunity for the for the most people. Again, the problem is always just how that's carried out. You know, for example, the, the the notion of the state attempting to be the primary force in rectifying these inequalities. Again, it's a nice idea, and it feels like the most expedient idea, but it's also a very slippery slope, right? Because then the state says, oh, "Okay, well." this is what we'll do to allocate resources to fix this problem. And there's two, two potential downfalls or pitfalls with that. One is typically when the state versus the market allocates resources, then they're less efficiently allocated because they're determined by a far, far less data, for la you know, to put it simply. And then secondly, perhaps it works out well or perhaps it doesn't, but m most often it creates other needs. And, so, and it also kind of trains the populace to look to the government for solutions. And so when inevitably other areas need to be equalized or opportunity has to be brought to other areas or services are required or a relative imbalance exists, the government is the one that the people go to to ask for these. And the effect of that is the government becoming bigger and more powerful over time. And of course, I don't have to tell you, I mean, this is the, the kind of cycle of 
different places around the world throughout history that have fallen prey to this, uh, this method of attempting to extricate themselves from difficult situations and finding themselves later on in worse situations as a result of that. Now, again, that's a, a very broad statement and there's a lot of nuance in between there, but the, the kind of wanted to use that context to ask you, have you read the book, um, the sovereign individual? No. First of all, I, I highly recommend that book, but one of the main theses of the book is that technology and technological innovation is what typically dictates what they call the logic of violence, which is basically just what are the incentives in a given society for the use of violence and how does that, how does that um, generate the different imbalances of power and then the political structures that need to try to, to contain that, those imbalances and, and channel it properly for a peaceful and prosperous and fair society. And so in many ways, it's the technological innovations that dictate ultimately the politics. Because if, if a technology can circumvent a certain political will or a certain political objective, then it becomes almost moot. And this kind of brings us to the point, you know, the, the, towards the latter part of our discussion, where we bring in something like Bitcoin. Because, you know, I've seen... Over the, I think very recently in Latin America, I think, you know, Chile and, and Colombia had recent elections and they elected left-leaning or socialist-leading politicians. And by and large, those politicians generally spend more. You know, that's part of their platform. They're going to provide more services to their people, et cetera. And one of the, well, one of the questions I have for you and one of the things that's, that's technology in the form of Bitcoin is currently going to bring a, a new paradigm to is regardless of what you and I and anybody else may think should, the state should provide, how does a state go about funding itself to provide these things to its people? So that's the first part of the question. And then maybe based off the, your answer to that and, and comments on what I've said thus far, we'll dig into how Bitcoin might change that and how technology generally might change the structure of politics as a result of the changing landscape of, of technology. I mean, again, these are huge issues, right? Um, mm. and, and I don't think we're capable of, of going to, to the extreme of, of just saying that the individuals will take care of themselves to overcome poverty. Um, I think that's unfair uh, and, and I think that's not viable. And, and I have seen poverty, inequality uh, at extremes. So um, for billions of people in the world, we need to figure out ways in which they have opportunities. One of them is access to finance. One of them is access to, um, to, to stable currencies. So, I mean, that's a discussion that we will go into now. Um, but there are many other opportunities like education and, and health. And, and I do believe that any individual should have the right to access education and health. Um, and I think it's very unjust to just leave that to, to the market uh, and just to say, you know, the, the market will solve access for billions of people to their basic needs. We have seen that that is not the case. And we have seen many societies that basically become more and more unequal. Um, so there needs to be an answer to that. Um, in, in, as I told you earlier, at least my, my calling to be part of uh, of the public service in Venezuela and to dedicate my life to politics 
is precisely this issue, you know, how to overcome poverty, you know, how to bring opportunities to the large majorities, how to um, diminish the inequalities that, that, that we have, not just in my country, but in, in, in many or all Latin American countries and in most of the countries in the world. So that's something we need to, we need to figure out. In the past, I think the solutions that were um, put into place in, in Latin America and in other countries, which was the state taking care of everything, and particularly the state um, being at the steering wheel of the economy, well, basically led to the story that we know of hyperinflation, of collapsing economies, of more poverty and more inequality. So the answer is not to give more, more, more power and more responsibility to the state. Um, I think the answer is to create prosperity, to create opportunities, and to have the state focus in the things that it has to do. Because if it doesn't do, if it's not done by 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 the state, it won't happen. And to stay away from the things that the society can do by itself. So running the economy and, and, and uh, running businesses, enterprises is something that the, the, that the people, that society can take care of. But guaranteeing the rule of law, justice and security, education and health uh, are things that need some sort of guidance, intervention, participation uh, of, of the state, particularly to the large majorities that are excluded from that. So um, that that's where that that balance needs to needs to happen. Um, mm -hmm. The promise of the state delivering everything for the people is very tempting. Uh, that's why we see some uh, populist governments and populist platforms winning elections in in Latin America and elsewhere because they go the easy way, basically promising that they will provide everything for free, that they will solve all of the problems. Um, without any effort by individuals and by society. Uh, and that's a very appealing uh, promise, right? I mean, that's a very appealing um, proposal, basically to tell people, I will take care of your destiny. I will solve your problems. That might be very appealing to, to many people. But we now know that that just won't be the answer to, to the problem of, of the large majority of the people. So I, I believe that there needs to be a balance uh, in that and that there are things that need to be changed for sure. Um, and I believe that financial freedom, and this is something that we spoke a lot about when we met, it, it's one of the things where we need to think of other paradigms. I come from a country that has experienced hyperinflation like very few countries in the world. So four years ago, we had more than 25,000% of inflation in our country. Our currency completely evaporated. Um, it was worthless. You needed backpacks of cash to buy bread and cheese. Um, so the currency became completely useless uh, as, 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 as a means of trade. Um, and people became poor. Um, inequality increased. Um, and the, there was no capacity to solve any of the problems of the people. So I think that we need to think of financial freedom uh, in a different way. I think giving um, the government the possibility to um, 
manage the currency in irresponsible ways to have short-term benefits for the government, but long-term costs for society is something that we need to think about and change. Um, and um, that's just one of the many areas that I believe that there needs to be some innovation and that we need to be open to different ways of, of solving these long-standing problems, because these are not new problems. These are problems that have been there for, you know, for decades, many of them for hundreds of years, uh, and then we need to figure out more innovative ways to solve them that are not necessarily saying that the government will solve them directly by taking care of the economy, by, by nationalizing um, the, 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 the companies, or by taking control of the currency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess I bring up the question because, you know, nobody has the right answer to this question and it remains to be seen how all these things are going to play out. The reason why I bring it up is because, you know, again, in that book, um, they, they use certain examples that uh, reveals the degree to which innovation influences politics because of the different things that it permits that weren't previously permitted in terms of what an individual might be able to do. And again, you know, I'm, I'm bringing this up to you to kind of share in the speculation of it. But if we, in the future, whatever a transitionary period looks like, if an individual, first of all, if the government is no longer in control of the currency, no, no longer has control over monetary policy, inflation, monetary supply, et cetera, and an individual can keep their, their savings private from any controlling authority, being able to see transactions, no balances, anything like that. Well, then it begs the question, how does a government apparatus, how does the state fund itself when, one, when taxation can be so easily avoided, right? Because the state no longer knows the flow of money as well, no longer can take it surreptitiously through the expansion of the supply, i.e. inflation, which is the primary means of, of many government funding today. And it seems to me that absent the, that easy way of funding itself, there will be this, it's likely to be a push towards nationalization of large industries because the government will seek ways that they can fund themselves. And that's kind of the only real other way. And when an individual's capital is sovereign, right? So when they are the only one that is custodying it and has access to it and nobody else can, and they have complete privacy, well, if they don't, if they think they're being overtaxed in a particular jurisdiction, if they think they're not availing of certain rights that they believe they should have access to in a certain jurisdiction, then it's far easier for them to leave, right? Say, hey, I'm, I'm living in Syria and I don't like everything that's happening here. I can just pick up and, and leave with all of my, my wealth intact. And what I think this will produce is a far more competitive landscape amongst jurisdictions, amongst, amongst nation states, because people will be more, it'll be easier for people to shop around. And, you know, yourself as, as a politician, I was just wondering if that, if any of that is true in an environment where we're moving into a place, regardless of your political ideology or mine, regarding how big the state should be and what services they should pro provide, it seems like technology is moving us in a direction where it's going to mean that the state is less capable of funding itself. And if that is the case, should that be integrated into our views of what we're promoting politically and our ideology and things like that? Do you know what I'm trying to say? No, no, I, I, I understand. And, and I mean, you're taking the argument of, um, 
financial freedom to the to the extreme, where everybody um, basically has self custody with no intermediation of of their own funds, and they mm -hmm. can move it from country to country, or they can hide it uh, and not present it to um, to, to the, the controls of any given sovereign state. And and yes, that, that poses uh, a huge challenge in, in the way that the states should be funded. But I think it's not just about how states can spend more and have more money to spend, but maybe how they can spend uh, more effectively um, and in the things that are really um, a responsibility for states. Um, and and, and this, is, this has been a question in economics thinking for, for you know, hundreds of years. Um, and now we have the possibility of thinking of new tools like, like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as, as part of, of this discussion that was not in the equation you know, 10, 20 years ago. Um, so now these possible scenarios start to, to pop up. Um, I think, I, that, well, I don't have the answer to the question. I don't think anybody has the answer to the question. Um, what I do know is that there are benefits in promoting financial freedom. What I do know is that for closed societies like Venezuela, Nicaragua, like Cuba, um, like many African countries, like Belarus, like Russia today, um, having the possibility for individuals, uh, for them to have sovereignty over their, their own funds, over their own uh, wealth, over their own transactions is a level of freedom that is very um, important and it's vital. Uh, and in many cases, it's about living or dying because the state we have seen over and over, and I saw it in, in the case of Venezuela, with the mismanagement of monetary policy, they impoverish the entire population and they take to starvation levels millions of people and they close opportunities for millions of people. And hyperinflation in our country, like Argentina and like many other cases, is the result of the mismanagement of the economy, is the result of the short-term lending uh, and the short-sighted printing of the local currency without the mid and long-term understanding of the consequences. And that's what happened in our country. So in a way, inflation is the state putting their hand in your pocket and taking your money away from you. Um, mm -hmm. And this has been very dramatic in many Latin American countries. And I do believe that there are now alternatives to that. And I think that individuals should have the right, should have the means, should have access to technologies that allow them to safeguard their own savings, uh, to have privacy in their own transactions, and to have the possibility to decide um, for their, their own decisions of, of, of what to do with their funds and, and how to move around uh, in, in within the, the financial possibilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I know we discussed in, in Norway how financial freedom affects many of the other freedoms that you have fought against and we so often talk about because, well, let's say Venezuela or any oppressive regime is a great example. The extent to which the regime can siphon wealth from the populace, most, of, most often, again, via inflation, printing money, 
then they're able to hire the guards, they're able to buy the weapons, all the other things that create all those human rights abuses that we often talk about, the violence, the murders, the unfairness, the, the power over elections. So much of that is derived from the ability to control money and to steal from people. So once that can be stopped, when the theft from the individual, when the theft from the people can be stopped, then we, I suspect we will see an amelioration, if not a complete resolution, but an improvement on the degree to which people who want to control others, these dictators, are able to pay the foot soldiers to actually do it. And once we starve them of that ability, then it should become a much fairer fight. You know, To use your terminology, we should be on more equal footing and hopefully truth and freedom will be able to emerge more easily in that type of environment. Uh, I know you got to run. I got two quick, two final questions for you and I appreciate the time. One is... Um, well, I'll ask the first one first. We, we talked a lot about Bitcoin and I know you and Gigi and I spent a lot of time on the trail and in the sauna and all this stuff. And I'm sure it was a very intense environment for you because no, a lot it was of it good. was, it was good. very new. I mean, I had a lot of questions and you guys had a good yeah, answers. You <laughs> yeah, you had great questions, which was, you know, very uh, refreshing. Um, what is your, you know, you just touched on it a little bit there, but what is your view currently on it or what, what excites you about the potential that you know, a, a, an emerging technology like Bitcoin represents for especially the cause of freedom, but in any other way that you might be thinking about it? Well, for me, it's not theoretical. It's very practical. So I, I want to start by that. Um, I've been following a lot of the discussion about financial freedom, and I, I find that most of it is uh, on the theoretical sphere. Um, but for billions of people in the world, billions, not millions, uh, is a vital question. It's either you have access or you just simply don't have access to, 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 um, to currency and to funding. So the way I came across this is while I was in house arrest, uh, this is 2019, um, we uh, had the possibility to use some of the funds that were seized by the dictatorship to promote social initiatives in Venezuela. So in 2020, when COVID came, we put together a mechanism to support medical doctors and nurses directly. So there were some funds seized uh, from the Maduro dictatorship that were in a Citibank account. These funds were taken to a New York Fed account and from there to a private bank, but then uh, in order to get those funds to Venezuela, the only way to do that was with electronic cash, stable coins. Um, and we were able to put together a mechanism that was actually approved by OFAC and the Treasury, because these were funds that were seized by, uh, by, the, by the U.S., um, in order to get the support directly to uh, 80,000 people. And in order for these 80,000 people to be beneficiaries of this program, they had to be, um, uh, they had to be vetted uh, because they couldn't be sanctioned by, by the U.S. So we were capable of putting together a mechanism to verify the identity of almost 80,000 medical doctors and nurses. It was a three-level verification mechanism. And we were able to successfully transfer um, through uh, electronic means without the intermediation of the financial institutions, private or public in Venezuela, 
to more than 80,000 people. And this became a success story. Unfortunately, we didn't have the funds to continue to have this as a permanent program. Um, we continue to support some thousands of people using this technology, but we, um, we hope to do much more. Uh, and this uh, allowed me to understand the benefits of, of Bitcoin uh, as an alternative, the benefits of stable coins uh, as an alternative, um, because this was the only way in which people could get funding without the uh, intermediation of financial institutions. Um, mm -hmm. And that's how we started in this, this, this conversation. And that's why I've been very interested in getting to know people and to understand more about the potential of, uh, of Bitcoin. I know um, that cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin and it's, it's going through a recession period now, it's going through a bear market process. And some of the ideas that were upheld uh, by those who defend um, Bitcoin are now challenged. Yeah, that we was anti-cyclical with inflation uh, and that we, it was uh, a way of holding value. Maybe those two ideas are challenged. We can discuss about that. Uh, but one idea that is not challenged is Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies as means to open opportunities for billions of people on earth that don't have the possibility to be part of the financial system. So more or less, we have 7 billion people in the world and only around 1 billion people are uh, formally part of the financial banking system. So you have a huge majority of the world population today that is unbanked, that is completely marginalized, and I believe that cryptocurrency opens uh, the opportunity to bank uh, um, billions of people, to give them access to um, financial freedom, to give them access to um, save their savings uh, in a currency different than their local currency that is always subject in cases in Latin America, Africa, Eastern Europe, we've seen this, uh, that is manipulated and abused by those in power. So I think that um, there are many benefits. And I think that the discussion about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies today should look at uh, the larger world and not focus in what's happening with the transactions of, uh, of Bitcoin or, or Ethereum uh, in, in, in the US and in Europe. There is a huge blue ocean of billions of people that uh, having access to these technologies, having access to these possibilities could really change their lives. Um, and, and this is true not only in Latin America, it's also true in Africa, it's also true in Eastern Europe. And, and going beyond that argument, I think that, that Bitcoin uh, and cryptocurrencies could solve a huge problem that many of the freedom and pro-democracy movements have all over the place. Um, because in order to give financial support to these movements, there are many restrictions. Um, using the financial institutions, private or public, uh, is, is very um, fragile. Um, and we have seen over and over, and I can tell you at least 10, 20 examples of how I have seen this in Venezuela, of the regime 
closing accounts, going after people, even imprisoning people that are linked to helping in some way to finance pro-democracy and freedom movements. Um, so this opens an opportunity to provide um, the support for pro-democracy and freedom movements in ways that we've never seen before. Uh, this mm -hmm. provides the opportunity of peer-to-peer -peer collaboration between individuals in the U.S. or in Europe or elsewhere to provide direct support to people who are fighting for freedom and democracy in Africa and Eastern Europe in Latin America. So there are endless opportunities to, to be open. And I think we are still at the very first stages of understanding how cryptocurrency can be a, a provider of solutions to many of the problems that the large majority of the world's population are facing today. Um, and, and I think that the, the current situation of a bear market in general, uh, and particular to the cryptocurrency um, industry, should focus in this. I, I think that many of the people that listen to your podcast that are people in, in the Bitcoin community should look at the opportunities that Bitcoin provides to uh, places in Africa, Latin America, and Eastern Europe. I've had this conversation with many of uh, activists like me from Africa, from Eastern Europe, and we all know, uh, we all share the potential of uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as a, as a provider uh, to solve many of our problems. But there are today still some uh, technological gaps there um, with respect to the characteristics of the exchanges. Um, for example, many of the exchanges today need to be linked to a bank account, so you're not solving the problem. Uh, if you are going to open uh, an account in Binance or in Coinbase, you need to have a bank account. So that's not solving your problem. Um, and many of the wallets that are being used um, are not fungible with um, dollars in the end that are the end mean to actually do a transaction. So we are at a moment where there needs to be some technological issues to be solved. Um, I hope that very soon we can uh, have um, a technological solution that provides an exchange that would allow individuals to register without a bank account, uh, that would allow individuals to register um, anonymously without providing their identification, not because they are going to do something bad, but because if you do that in, in a closed environment, in a, under a dictatorship, that is um, a threat to your own freedom. Um, a technology that provides a decentralized uh, solution um, and a technology that doesn't require any material uh, hardware to, to be distributed. So um, I, I think that once we have a solution to, to those problems, we will see how not millions, but billions of people will start using um, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, stable coins as a solution to their problems with inflation, as a solution to their possibilities of saving, and as a solution to the transaction um, that I hope it becomes more and more massive, the possibilities to transact with, uh, with these um, new technologies in countries like, like Venezuela and, and many others 
that are today under the control, under the surveillance, under the threat of um, closed regimes of dictatorships that will always uh, look at your movements and will always try to close the doors that could open um, to provide support for freedom and pro-democracy movements. Amen. I couldn't have said it better myself. I, uh, I agree with so much of that, and I think it's extremely well put and a very important message for people to hear. And I can tell you, you know, a lot of people in this community, in this industry, are certainly working on many of the, the things that you mentioned, you know, many of the functionality and improvements that we still need. It's, a, it's still very, very early days, but uh, many people share that perspective, and they're trying to build out the tools and solutions to make that possible so that more people can gain access to financial freedom and gain access to international markets and not have their wealth taken from them and be able to transact in the way that they see fit and all those, you know, and all the things that we've been discussing. And it's, uh, it's very exciting that that's the case. And as you said, the noise of, you know, price fluctuations in a, in the short term, um, it's exciting to talk about and it gets a lot of press, but that's not really the, the important part of the story that's going on here. And, and, uh, it seems like more and more people are recognizing that. And I love that. Um, I love to hear those words coming out of your mouth. Cause I suspect a few months ago, we probably wouldn't have heard, you know, precisely that type of uh, description, but it's, um, it was great to get a chance to speak with you in Norway as well as here today. I know you've got some other obligations today, so I won't take up any more of your time. Is there any final message or, uh, you know, places or destinations you'd like to direct people before we shut this down? Well, I, I just think that, I mean, given, given that your community is, is very close to, um, to these issues, to, to Bitcoin and, and, uh, and cryptocurrency and new technologies, um, I would invite um, the people who are listening to, to think of the possibilities in, in that part of the world that uh, is, is in great need of solutions to vital problems. Um, and I've come to, to the challenge of how to make freedom investable. Um, because many times the financing of freedom becomes an obstacle. And many times the financing of freedom comes through charity or, or donations. Um, and I think we need to figure out a way in which freedom is also investable. That, that freedom is also something that you can invest and, and, and have some medium or long-term benefits from it. Um, so I would invite people to think about this and understand the huge potential that these technologies have for Africa, Latin America, and, and close societies. People need this. And I can tell you, because I know that today, millions of Venezuelans have to pay very high costs for getting funds from their families who are living abroad um, to, to be transferred in Venezuela. So if $100 are sent to Venezuela, most probably $80 is what ends up um, being given to the recipient. Uh, many times it's more. Uh, so I think we need to figure out ways in which to lower these transaction costs, ways in which people can become more autonomous, ways in which these transactions can be anonymous, ways in which they can be more fluent. Um, and I am certain that if we start to, you know, to, to, 
to push this this uh, exchange, um, there will be more possibilities for freedom. Uh, if we figure out ways in which more people have access to financial freedom, that will in turn um, increase the probabilities to have um, a free society. So that's why this is so important. Um, I am currently working in, in, in um, putting together an alliance of freedom and pro-democracy movements around the world. I came to the conclusion that one of the best ways to fight for the freedom of Venezuela is to present our conflict as part of a global conflict. And that has led me to meet many people from around the world, Africa, Eastern Europe, Latin America, to meet incredible people uh, that are going through very similar um, struggles like the one we are going through in Venezuela. So we are putting together this alliance by the end of this year. We want to hold what we call the World Liberty Congress that ideally will bring together leaders and, and activists from many of the more than 50 autocratic countries in the world. And one of the issues that we will be discussing is technology and financial freedom. Uh, and I think that there is a, an ocean of opportunities here. Um, after our conversations in Norway, I was really surprised, but also very encouraged to know that we are still at the very early stages. Uh, I was really surprised to know that, or, or to, to hear from you and from others, that there are still many technological challenges to overcome in order for uh, cryptocurrencies, stablecoins become uh, a solution to people uh, beyond the United States and, and Europe. Um, and I was also very encouraged to learn that there are many people working on this. And I would just like to encourage people to continue to work on this, to look at that huge opportunities uh, that billions of people in the world represent. Um, and also not just look at this as, as, as a economic uh, opportunity, but also as the opportunity to bring freedom uh, to individuals, to societies, and even to whole countries and continents. Um, and this really excites me. This really, uh, I believe that is, is something worth spending uh, time and, and putting the efforts of like-minded people from different areas, from different industries, to figure out ways in which um, cryptocurrencies, stable coins, and of course, Bitcoin leading all of this uh, can become an answer to, to some of these questions. And, and in a way, this bear market is an opportunity because it will you know, shed light in, in other areas that might have been misunderstood or, or not taken as a, as, as a, as a priority. Uh, and now they should become a priority for the cryptocurrency industry how to promote financial freedom, how to give the opportunity to billions of people to be uh, banked, uh, how to uh, lower the costs of billions of dollars that are transacted uh, through remittances, um, how to provide better services to people, how to um, give people the possibility 
uh, of privacy in, in their financial transactions. I mean, these are all, all values that you hold very dear. Um, in my conversations with you, with Gigi, with others, um, I identified very, very much with you guys because you are activists uh, for financial freedom. I mean, you are people that hold very dearly the, the, the values. I mean, you are not in this just because of this is an industry that might provide or not economic benefit, but you truly believe in this. And I, I, and I found that in our conversations with you guys. So I, I think that in the places in which these values are really, really shown to, to be there and to make a difference is places like Venezuela, Africa, and, and Eastern Europe. I recently had a conversation with uh, some friends from the Russian opposition to Putin. We were talking about this and they were saying that, that they were really interested in the, in the Bitcoin uh, opportunities, cryptocurrencies and all of this. And they said, yes, we're doing, you know, we're supporting many people um, now um, in our country and asking how many people are you supporting? They said, well, between 200 and 300 people in our, uh, in, in our movement. And I said, well, we, we've gone to 80,000 people. And, and he couldn't believe it. He, he, he couldn't believe that we had gone to the tens of thousands. So now we're working together and they are understanding what we did in Venezuela. They're trying to do something similar in, in, uh, for the opposition in Russia. Um, the same conversation I'm having with the people in Belarusia um, and in, with, with uh, my friends from, from Africa. And I am absolutely convinced that if we work together with people like you and people who, the, like, like the, your audience in this podcast, um, we might, um, well, we, we, we might um, share a, a lower and less steep learning curve and, and we can have research, results in, in, in a shorter term um, to open and give opportunities to millions of people in the world. Absolutely. And to that end, if there's any ever way that myself or the, my colleagues at CT or even people in the broader Bitcoin industry uh, can help in that capacity. If you need learning resources or anything like that, of course, you can just let me know and I'll do everything I can to uh, put you in touch with the right resources or people. Um, but I, I agree with, with so much, pretty much everything uh, that you just said. And I think it's incredible that this message is starting to get out to more people so that people have more options in their toolkit in the fight for freedom. And on your point about the um, Congress that you are putting together, and I'm just, I'm, I'm only bringing this up to put a little bit more pressure on you because I know we talked about this at dinner one night, but wouldn't it be great if you could sit down for one-on-one -on -one conversations with all those different people that you're connecting with that are in these different parts of the world, you know, Belarus, Russia, Syria, Venezuela, you know, all these places where people are, are one, identifying and valuing the importance of these principles of freedom and truth and truth and liberty, and then doing things in their families, communities, nations, what have you, industries, uh, to promote them. Wouldn't it be cool to have Leopoldo sit down for a conversation with them and, you know, talk about their motivations and their stories and stuff like that? Because I know we, we, we briefly talked about, uh, you know, a podcast where you were having discussions around freedom with, with people. Yeah, freedom and talks. <laughs> freedom talks, exactly. So I'm just, I'm bringing that up to put a bit more pressure on you to see if we can make that happen someday. But um, Leopoldo, this has been great, man. It, it was an honor and a pleasure to meet you in Norway. Uh, an honor and a pleasure to speak to you again today. And uh, I look forward to the chance that we get to do it again uh, sometime in the future. 
No, we will do so for sure. And uh, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll give you all the information about uh, the event. I would really um, like you and other people from, from the community to participate in this event uh, and share with other activists and, and, and see the possibilities. Um, we experienced uh, in a three-day retreat, um, for me, it was, a, it was a great experience and a, a great opportunity to learn a lot with very smart and motivated people that are in this community. And I'm sure you got, you know, similar experience learning from people from Ukraine, from Africa, from Latin America, and understanding that what you've been talking about, financial freedom, that mostly is a conversation within the U.S., within Europe, within, you know, the people, who, the usual suspects of, of that community. Now, you know, you expanded your universe of, you know, potential beneficiaries of this to to the rest of the world. And, and I think this is something very exciting. Uh, we need to continue to have this bringing together of people from different sectors uh, to talk about these things, to figure out ways uh, to solve the problems and to converge the financial freedom with the political freedom. And, and that convergence is, is where I am. Um, I, I truly believe in this. And I think that there are many ways in which we can support the, the lives of millions of people around the world if we can join efforts um, among the people who hold these values uh, as worth fighting for from their different perspectives, joining efforts, uh, coming together and bringing about solutions. So it's, uh, it's been great talking to you. Um, let's continue to be in touch. And, and I, I hope to see you in November. All right, brother. And uh, say hi to Lillian for me and uh, I look forward to speaking again soon. Bye-bye, my friend. All the best. And thank you for the invitation. I hope you guys enjoyed this discussion with Leopoldo. I apologize if we moved a little quickly through some of the topics we covered. There were definitely several things that I would have liked to discuss in greater detail, but time constraints meant that we'll have to save a more in-depth discussion on certain themes for round two sometime in the future. If you'd like to learn more about Leopoldo, follow him on Twitter at Leopoldo Lopez and visit leopoldolopez.com. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.